at me and cried and said something broke inside of you? No. <laughs> it was a long time ago, Stephen. Ah. It was when I was but a boy and you were still the same age you are today. Ah. 26 and strapping young man you are. Stay on Marconi yeah. because everybody's listening to Music Biz 101 and more on Bridgeview Radio. <laughs> That's right. So, uh, no more basketball. No more basketball. Did they win? No. Our po- I think that's hockey tonight. <laughs> I'm talking without my mic. Um, there is a, a basketball game tonight. It's some sort of tournament. Oh, a men's basketball yeah, consolation. Yeah, ECAC tournament. Oh, really? Huh. Yeah. Um, I like the ACDC tournament because they always start the games with back in black. Yeah. Have Ben can play that. <laughs> you guys should, yeah. We do. You should have your, uh, by the way, the woman talking is Ashley Weltner. She is our engineer, and she is mm-hmm. a, a fine young woman who is also in the pep band here. Yay, good to have you. What do you, what instrument do you play at pep band here at William Patterson University? Pep band. I play clarinet. Oh, and the pep band is sponsored by Pep Boys for all your automotive <laughs> oh. needs. No, Pep Boys. Boys. I heard you. Pep Boys to men. <laughs> anyway. Yeah. Ashley Killing is our direct connection to basketball here That's at right. WPU. She's 7'5", and she came to William Patterson University on a basketball scholarship. Yes. And, um, she's gonna, her goal is to own a, an Italian women's basketball team in Germany. So we're listening to Don't Let Love Down by your friend Rob Fusari. He's also mm-hmm. our friend, the producer of Lady Gaga. You know, Rob is the musical director of I Want My 80s, the best of MTV's April Ladies. 6. Coming April 6th to William Patterson University. Yes. Big fundraising concert. You know who the headlining artist is, Dr. Esteban? Dave Philp. Um, no. Oh. Um, uh, the headlining artist is Michelangelo, who is oh, a wonderful painter. Nobody no, he's, he's, would have he's come. He's not living anymore. I know. Dave Philp. I know. No, nobody wants to see him. No, I understand, yes, that you have a brilliant uh, artist from the 80s. Yes. So he just had several hits. Her, seven top 10 hits, Taylor Dane. Wow. Including the number one hit, Love Will Lead You Back, written by Miss Diane Warren. She could have been Mrs. or Ms. No. I don't know anything is. about her personal life. I do. <laughs> you spent no, some time. I do. About Diane Warren? Yes. I do bring up to students, do you know who Diane Warren is? Let me, let's ask our, we have a student co-host, Georgina Reed. Hello, Georgina Reed. Hello, hello. Yeah. Georgina Reed is a voice major, music, manage, music and entertainment industries major here at William yes, Pasadena am, University. Yes. Do you know who Diane Warren is? The answer is no. That's right. I think, I think my parents were talking about her when I was being conceived. <laughs> other than that, Within no. the act of conception. She was, actually, she was big then, too. But her, her big claim to fame is uh, she writes songs for strong women. Mm-hmm. Usually, most of her that have, has that theme. Yeah. Um, and she's been a hit maker for 20 years. Easy. Mm, yeah, uh, oh. Chilene Dion, she wrote songs for uh, Aerosmith. Oh, yeah. uh, yep. We already mentioned. Smythe. Yeah. Um, on and on, really. Yeah, exactly. Um, so. Uh, anyway, how did we get to Diane Warren? Because of I Want My 80s Best of MTV's Ladies. Ah. Which is happening April 6th when we pass the university. Right. Starring Ms. Taylor, Ms. I believe it's Ms. Taylor Dane. And? And also Mark Goodman from yes. M- original MTV VJ is going to be our co MC along with Maury Majes- Lori Majeski. That's who right. is a uh, first wave host on the channel, first wave channel on Sirius XM. Mm-hmm. And Rob Fusari is musical director. We also have Chris Butler, who is the was the lead writer and guitar player for The Waitresses. 
I know what boys like. I know what boys want. I know mm -hmm. what boys like. Boys like boys like me. Yes. And then I also would like to bring up uh, Daryl McDaniels. The DMC from Run DMC is He's also coming. going to be. Yes. <gasps> Was Did I gonna, tell you that? Never. Was that going to be a surprise? It, originally, he he played last year, yes, and then I did. texted him the other day. As uh, he, we were raising money, music industry talk. We're doing the show. Ashley, do you remember the Ashley's in a class that I teach? We're putting the show together. Do you? And this will lead back to Run DMC. Then eventually, Alex Fletcher, who's sitting very patiently waiting. Thank you, Alex, who is our guest. Um, Ashley, so what are the revenue streams that you recall from our I Want My 80s, The Best of MTV's Ladies? Well, there is an auction. We're auctioning off things. I hope it's quicker than last year. It'll oh, be, it better be. MTV <laughs> used to have a show called 120 Minutes, so yes. we're doing 120-second auctions, two-minute auctions. Ah, and that's somebody, how we, yes. somebody's going to be keeping time. Yes, we're going to actually Stop have a timekeeper. Uh, yeah, and that's how we got to Daryl McDaniels for this year. Well, last year, we auctioned off a comic. He actually came out auction. We got $400 for this comic. Yes, from Harvey of his. Yes, so I was going to ask him, do you want to auction, can we auction off a comic, which led to, do you want to auction off yourself, which led to, since you're here, do you want to do some songs with the band, mm -hmm. which led to, yes, I'm available, sure, let's do it, here's when I want to practice, here are the songs I want to do. Good. He's into it. So revenue streams mm -hmm. for our show, this is a good thing for all of us to learn, so we have an auction, mm -hmm. what else? We have sponsorships. Sponsorships. Mm -hmm. We have donations, which donations. will be done at the event. Mm -hmm. um, ticket sales. Mm-hmm. Merchandise, which is cups, well, mugs, and T-shirts. Right. Mm -hmm. And then we also have the donations, but you, like, when you go to church and you pass around the bucket. The offertory. Right. Yes. We're going to do an offertory at the show, ah. which we did last year. We raised, uh, I think, through that part, either seven or $900 just passing around neon baskets. And you're not going to have as many shirts printed up as last year, are no. you? No. No. Splitting it up. We have a good plan. We learned from our mistakes. Mm -hmm. Do they have to be black? I think they're going to be white shirts. Yeah, I don't think they should be black, especially in the spring. Mm -hmm. Spring when love is yeah, in the air. That's love right. Love is in the air. Well, that's yeah. good. Now, who's sponsoring tonight? By the way, that is six revenue streams. So for any show you do, maximize those revenue streams. Tonight, our guest is Alex Fletcher, the president of Fletcher Artist Management. Alex Fletcher, are you there, our good friend? I am here. He is here. You're not even, well, you could do it at the end. At yes. The tail. You can say who's sponsoring. Yes, I will. I will mention our sponsors because uh, we wasted already. We we uh, our show started late and then we uh, rambled on about revenue streams. We should get right into our good friend Alex Fletcher, yes, the president and uh, artist manager at Fletcher Artist Management. I learn. I met Alex over email over the summer. Alex, tell me if you remember or do not remember. I emailed you. I was doing a project. I was asking all sorts of managers and artists and uh, people with labels all around the industry, what's the one thing every artist manager needs to know within the music and entertainment industry? And you gave me a very, right. a very kind answer. Uh, and then, of course, if I had done my research, I would have been able to read back to you what you said. Uh. So maybe I'll find that <laughs> at some point. But then um, I emailed uh, Alex a couple of times and then um, that's when he said he would come on the air. And mm -hmm. the cool thing about you, Alex, which you and I talked about, is that you're filling a, a, a wide gap in our knowledge and in our guest list for Music Biz 101 and more mm -hmm. because we have not had enough representation of the non-mainstream music. We have not had enough classical or jazz. or Lat We haven't had any Latino. That's right. I don't think at all. So there's, there's some holes in our game that um, you're helping to fill tonight. So thank you for blowing up the airs in our flat tire tonight. Yes. Alex Fletcher. <laughs> Very happy to. Alex Fletcher. <laughs> thank you. And have a good night. So that was Alex. So now we okay. want to go on to other things. No, kidding, Alex. So um, I want to introduce you to Dr. Esteban Marconi. Say hello, Dr. Esteban. Hello, Dr. Esteban. Yes. I do get a word in every once in a while, Alex. Not much, but I do. I'm done for the next 20 minutes. Now, yes, he now he'll be zoned right out when we need him, <laughs> of course. Right. Anyway, it's a pleasure to meet you. And uh, Dave is correct that we don't, I don't think, do enough for the, um, basically what you would say, the non-commercial side, even though, of course, classical music and classical artists have to eat. So they uh, certainly look for a commercial um, revenue stream. But uh, I was uh, on your website a couple of times this week, and I was um, uh, sort of um, very happy to see the number 
of especially vocalists that you have. And I think the first question we would ask that many vocalists would want to know is, how do you choose someone or do they choose you to be with sure. you at the management firm? Well, it comes a lot of different ways, you know, and I think um, like uh, probably the commercial side of things as well, you've got to have the it factor. And uh, that's what I look for mm -hmm. um, with an opera singer. Um, you know, definitely you've got to have a certain quality of voice and performance, um, but there is that, uh, you know, that connection and that kind of uh, indescribable um, value that they have that you pick up on. Mm -hmm. um, so, you know, how, in terms of how I find artists or how they find me, um, you know, there's a variety of them. I travel to see my clients where they're performing, and I meet a lot of people that way. Um, and, you know, at this point, I'm known in the industry, and mm -hmm. uh, my clients, you know, work with other singers. They ask about me, and uh, sometimes, you know, I make relationships that way. So mm -hmm. there's, a, there's a few different ways. Mm -hmm. I noticed, too, that... Um the majority of them, of course, are opera. Do they? Do you sort of um, get the artists when they're young, even before they've had that maybe middle level opera experience, or do you? They seem to find you after that. Um, you know that initial, I'm serious and I'm doing this type of thing. Yeah, normally they've got some experience by the time that you know I come onto their radar or they come onto mine. Um, you know, it, it definitely depends. I mean, I work with some artists who have been in the business for 20, uh, plus years and, you know, I'm not their, their first or second manager. Um, and some people I work with right from the get go, um, you know, but normally, uh, the model for opera is, you know, we have most opera companies have young artist programs where mm -hmm. they're developing emerging opera singers and it's generally around that level um that i might you know meet an artist and want to sign them and kind of help pr bring them to the next the next level and the performing professionally level mm -hmm, mm -hmm. and are you uh these artists exclusive with you uh most of them are uh worldwide i do um sometimes partner with european uh mm -hmm. managers um there's so much opera in europe uh, you know, Germany alone has uh, so many opera companies and, and maybe just that uh, country, you know, has more than we have in the States mm -hmm. um, because every town or city of a certain size has a company. So there in Europe, there are so many opportunities. Sometimes it makes sense to have a manager uh, on the ground there. Mm -hmm. And uh, and thankfully, I've met a lot of a lot of colleagues on that side of the pond who I like to work with and mm -hmm. uh, no problem partnering for for singers. So it depends uh, depends on the artist and what they need, but most of them are with me worldwide. Yeah. So in the uh, commercial field, there is a distinct difference between a booking agent and a, an, an, a manager, personal manager. Right. Uh, in the classical field, it seems to be not as... Um, well, even I notice even like on television that when the late night get a guest and I see many times that the the guests the the actual uh, personality is throwing the word agent and manager around uh, and it seems to be that they are almost interchangeable to them and uh, yeah, of definitely. course we know in the rock field it isn't you're either you're with the CAA and that's your agent and then you have a manager and that's the way it sits and uh, by law, of course, in most states, that a manager cannot be an agent unless they have a booking license within that state. Uh, but how does it work in in the classical field? Yeah, we the classical field, you know, we kind of streamline it a little bit. I mean, I think, um, you know, one of my clients uh, is married to a screenwriter, and exactly, he's repped by WME, and then he's got a manager. Uh, in the classical, you know, world, we wear both hats. Um, the really good um, managers are, are the ones who can do the function of the agent and the manager. Mm -hmm. They can um, help make the relationships, help the artists to get opportunities, and they can also advise them on 
career moves and what the best moves are and what the opportunities they should take are. Sure. Um, you know, certainly within the field, we've got people who veer better towards one side or the other side, but in theory, we do it all. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. That's interesting because if we have, and here at school, we, uh, Dave and I get approached all the time, and that is it'll be a, you know, a new rock band or whatever, and they don't really know very much. So they say, and they come to us and they say, do you know any good managers? And we say, uh, you know, we give them the spiel and so on. Then we say, well, why do you want management? Well, we need more gigs. Well, that's <laughs> first of all, that's not what a manager does. So they're already confused. And I don't know, do many times when you meet young opera singers coming up and so on, they go, well, I want to work more. I want to get more to, you know, I want to get more gigs. Uh, and in the same fashion, does that happen? Yeah, definitely. And I think uh, a lot of young opera singers, they don't really know what uh, managers slash agents mm -hmm. do uh, and what we don't do. Um, you know, one thing that I try to do when I travel and visit opera companies is make myself available to talk to the young artists in their programs um, just so they can ask me questions mm -hmm. about mm -hmm. what what sorts of functions managers and agents take care of and what we don't and what can be expected of us and what's expected of them. Um, I find there's a big, there's a big gap in that. And in, uh, and in classical music conservatories, um, a lot of times that's a topic that doesn't get covered because Taboo. Taboo. the conservatories don't really have relationships with the, the managers or the agents right. to even get that information. So, right. uh, yeah, that's definitely something that, um, I encounter and something that I try to, to help out with as much as I can. You know, we have a, um, we have a, a, a department of music here that actually has, um, we consider ourselves pretty liberal because we have a strong jazz program and there's a strong classical program. And then we have the music business side music and entertainment industries. And then we just added a, a pop side. But when we're teaching in the music uh, business classes and we just show let's just take the recording industry and we'd like to look at um, statistics and we'll see that out of every dollar spent on recorded music two cents will be spent on classical and maybe two cents will be spent on jazz that a classical mm -hmm. and jazz may equal may make four percent you know very, um, seldom over five percent at all so you're letting people out of a, a school and they're only going to be able to find work if they're not teaching in 2% of the business. And then you yeah. don't give them the skills to learn the business. Yeah. It, it's almost a crime when you, when you look at it that way, instead of saying, well, you know, get it together. You're all going to have to be entrepreneurs on your own. You're all going to have to figure this out. You're all going to have to be DIY in the beginning. Yeah. And you're all going to have to hopefully get to the point where an Alex Fletcher will take you on. And it's, yeah. it's, it's something that, uh, well, I've been doing this for 30 years, and it is actually was one of my pet peeves that I got out with a master's. And I was actually, I was a classical player, too, but I went with a rock group. I was on Columbia Records and so on and so forth. And they said, just play. Don't worry about anything else. Well, we didn't know anything. I mean, you just yeah. didn't know how the business worked. And if you knew how the business worked, maybe I would have been, you know, you would have come to see me play or something. Uh, but uh, <laughs> consequently, it's always been one of my goals was to teach the musician about their own business. Yeah. Uh, because we just don't do it. Uh, Definitely. And I'm sure that you start many times with just ground zero with with the best of the young sopranos or whatever. Sure. Yeah, yeah. And, and that's something that we have to reinforce, you know, is that the the way that uh, our enterprise will work best is if we are a team and if we're both actively approaching it, we both network, we both uh, keep up with our contacts, and we feed off of each other. I think, um, you know, a lot of young artists are, are just led to believe that doors will be opened for them um, and that, you know, everything will kind of be done for them by a manager and that if mm -hmm. they don't have a manager, they can't accomplish anything. Right. Uh, and the reality is, you know, I mean, I know a number of 
of classical singers who are very enterprising, who have built their own careers, um, you know, maybe not uh, to broad exposure in the way that you might with management, but very successfully without management because mm-hmm. they, as you say, they're entrepreneurial, they're organized, um, and they get it. So that's that's definitely yeah. something that yeah. that we that I try to reinforce when I speak with with emerging artists for sure. The head of our jazz program is uh, Bill Charlop. And Bill Sharp um, really is the American songbook jazz pianist uh, yeah. and goes all over the world. And it was he won a Grammy with uh, Tony Bennett last year, uh, so on and so forth. And Dave and I have asked him about management. And he said he's yet to find a manager that will tell him that they can do more than he's doing now for <laughs> himself. So right. when you, when that happens to you, what do you normally say to that artist or that young artist yeah i mean i try to be honest you know about whether i think i can add value to someone's career or not uh and sometimes i have said to people um you know i think that right now um there's nothing else i could bring to the table you know Mm -hmm. Um, i'm always looking for you know a place where i can fill a void where i can take it to the next level um but yeah that's sometimes that's not the case Mm -hmm. mm-hmm mm-hmm do artists, um, do your artists um, ever shy away from the, let's say, the rubber chicken circuit? Or, you know, they have to shake hands at donors and they have to so on. Uh, do, they, do we have that prima donna thing that we do have in the <laughs> rock field many times? They're, I guess, divas in the classical world. Yeah, yeah, the divas, right. <laughs> well, we, you know, we definitely... Uh, I think the diva is um, more a thing of the past increasingly, but we definitely still have the, uh, you know, the lead soprano locking herself in her <laughs> dressing room inconsolably or, uh, you know, yeah. that sort of stuff. We've still, still got that. Yeah. But, um, no, I think a lot of, a lot of uh, you know, as you alluded to, the model for classical music is, you know, the ticket sales and the revenue that's brought in uh, does not, take care of the expenses by far and uh we rely on donors you know so i think um you know a lot of artists understand that and actually not only are are happy to meet and speak with donors but actually forge relationships with them and um you know sometimes maybe if they've got a, a, a reach project that they would really like to do you know a donor will generously sponsor that because of that existing relationship or whatever, but we've got some, you know, we have some, we have uh, all types of personalities in classical music, and we've mm-hmm. got some people that would just be happy to go back to the hotel and not have to speak with anyone, right. and, uh, yeah, we've got a little bit of all of it. Yeah. I had a, a former student that actually was a manager of a, um, well, a late rock artist. However, part of his career, he was the being, he was the U.S. manager, or the U.S., um, contact for foreign orchestras that came over mm. and they'd come over and they'd do a small tour maybe it would be you know four or five cities and whatever and he'd have to get the 60 keys and he'd have to and he said it was far worse than any rock thing he had ever done <laughs> any rock tour the amount of drinking the amount of carrying on the amount of who's sleeping with whom and so on and so forth was, was endless. And I just got a kick out of it. I had done runouts many times when I, I spent 25 years in Syracuse. So I had played yeah. with the Syracuse Symphony too, and I had done those runouts and so on, you know, and, and got a little what, taste. What's a runout? What do you mean a runout? Well, that they may stay overnight, but they were going maybe less than 100 miles and do two or three concerts and then come back to Syracuse and so on, just what you call a runout. So I saw a little bit of that, but he was really pretty. Um, he was amazed himself at, at how much carrying on was was going on. Anyway, yeah. uh, we know we notice, you know, that certainly Pavarotti and um, the three tenor thing, and uh, maybe uh, Renee Fleming and so on. That many of these artists now are starting to use the marketing of from the commercial world to actually, um, you know. We're using the marketing from the commercial world to market many of these artists, uh, and you know the three tenors, of course, caught on so, so well, and and so on. Sure. Um, do you see more and more of 
sort of that like, um, gee, maybe you should have some merchandise. Maybe you should have a merch to, you know, to when you're talking to an artist about revenue streams or maybe you should get a T-shirt printed up for this uh, this thing coming up or whatever. Do you, is that, are we approaching that in the classical field? No, you know, I think that for, for the classical world, that's kind of diminished. I think, um, mm -hmm. you know, Pavarotti and the three tenors, um, that was sort of the golden era of, uh, and certainly even going back to Beverly Sills, sure. you know, who was the, the famous soprano and, yeah. um, you know, would always be on the late night shows. Yeah. Um, you know, I think classical music had more of a place in the mainstream then and, um, you know, there were more opportunities that came along with that. Mm -hmm. I mean, now if, if you're an artist uh, like Renee Fleming, you know, Renee Fleming has the uh, opportunity to do lots of one-off concerts mm -hmm. um, at various venues and with symphonies. And I'm sure that, um, you know, she does sell albums from her, you know, wide discography over her career. Mm -hmm. um, but the average, you know, the average artist... Um, I isn't doing those sorts of shows and doesn't have um, that type of stuff to sell and uh, and yeah some of the some of the things that would definitely have appeal uh, on the commercial side in terms of merch we just yeah that that doesn't translate over to the opera world mm. really you you make most of your money um, from the performances that you give and from those those performance fees that's where the bulk of the revenue comes from for the right. artist. Right. And most of your artists, and I counted on your website, 43, the majority are opera singers? Yeah, I mean, yes, they they do opera, and, uh, you know, they'll definitely, um, you know, for example, the Syracuse Symphony or the New Jersey Symphony or any of those symphonies, if they program, you know, works that call for vocal, um, they will definitely do those as well. And, mm -hmm. and many artists prefer those. Um, orchestral jobs, or at least would like a nice dose of them, because uh, whereas for an opera production, you can be in a city for five or six weeks, uh, you know, a concert mm -hmm. engagement is normally a week, you show up, a couple days of rehearsal, two or three concerts, and you go home, right. uh, and you still get to, you still get to perform at a really high level with great musicians. So, um, but yeah, most of them, they stick to that. There is a little bit of a trend now in the classical music world where some agencies have um, expanded either to um, music theater or or expanding even into commercial television and film uh, we have a couple of agencies that do that um, and and those people have the right skill sets for that but for, for people like me yeah we're still very much centered in the opera and the classical music world Mm -hmm. uh, we would like to read a question to you via tweet, and uh, we haven't introduced you to Georgina Reed, who is our student co-host, and she is also a uh, vocalist as well. Say hi to Alex, Georgina. Hello, Mr. Fletcher. I had hi, sent Georgina. you a LinkedIn uh, invite, and you didn't connect with me, so I'm a little uh -oh. resentful. That's that. <laughs> I'm, not as, I'm not as on the LinkedIn as I should be. It's a periodic check-in, but I gotta fix that, so I will definitely connect. Okay. Well, um, we have a tweet from um, Carrie K. Kress saying, um, how do you make the artists you represent stand out compared to all the other classical and opera singers out there? Hmm. Mm -hmm. Well, I think that uh, I think that they do a lot of that for themselves. You know, I think that the, the talent and um, how they perform um, and their personalities, and, you know, in, in our field, really, the personality is the brand. Um, you know, I think a lot of that helps them to distinguish themselves. I mean, I have, you know, certainly a, a network, and I try to secure them opportunities within that network and things that will bring them exposure, um, both in terms of audiences and, you know, media and that sort of thing. But, um, I think the thing that they, helps them to stand out the most is them. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, good. Um, we will, I mean, we'll always have the Horowitz and the, and Yo-Yo Ma and, you know, the ones that are just superstars and the, uh, someone like Yo-Yo Ma, I guess because it was, he started so young to be a superstar that he was able to branch out and do several things that are sort of on the either lighter classical or on the commercial side. Um, mm -hmm. Do any of your artists like 
come to you and say, well, I'm great at opera, but man, I want to sing jazz and I want to, I want to do music theater and I want to, you know, I just want it. I want it all. Uh, I haven't had any of those, but I definitely know artists like that. And, mm -hmm. uh, you know, they're definitely, I've worked with artists in the past where it made sense, um, for them to have, you know, another agent in a different space, whether that was music theater or, or something else. Um, because yeah, they, they were interested in that. Um, there, the, it is interesting, you know, that while a lot of artists don't necessarily want to pursue those things professionally, um, lots of, you know, they have a lot of talent, um, you know, in singing different styles of music. Um, I think a lot of them probably could perform in music theater if they wanted to, um, or perform in other genres. But, um, but I also think that classical music, um, it's so niche and it's so specific that most of these people really have a drive um, and a passion to perform that. And it's such mm -hmm. a hard um, industry that they wouldn't be in it if there was something else that they thought they could be just as happy doing. So I think a lot of them are really just focused mm -hmm. uh, on that, even if they do have other interests. Now, is the uh, I know you have another tweet here, right? Mm -hmm. uh, one, one thought I had that uh, men can sing oratorio or they could sing some opera well into, well, we have one Steve Bryant here who just retired recently and he's 70 and he's sure. still getting work um, from messiahs and so on. Uh, women usually can't go that long, can they? True, yeah. The, the, the range um, of the career, you know, it definitely depends, but it is unusual um, for most women to sing past 60. Um, it mm -hmm. definitely can happen. Um, but yeah, it definitely is a, there's a, a bit of a shelf life. Um, and, and some of that has to do with, um, how the voice matures, especially for men who sing lower, like baritone yeah. faces, their yeah. voices don't mature until later on. Um, you know, and, uh, yeah, so it sort of depends on what type of classical music they do, but, um, you know, there definitely is a little bit of a difference in the shelf life there. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Here's another tweet from Georgina. Um, we have a tweet from Kandarius, um, Bonner. Uh, as an artist manager for classical singers, what are some of your high demand responsibilities? What are you doing every day, basically? Yeah. Well, um... You know, I think there is, there is a lot of advice and counsel um, that, you know, that goes into this. Um, and I think, you know, part of it is that when artists sign on to do something, especially if it's an opera or something like that, they're committing um, to pick up their life and go live it somewhere else for a little while. Um, and, you know, they may be in a city for, like I said, five or six weeks, but there are contracts that are longer than that. They could be there for a couple of months. Um, and, you know, I think there's a lot of advice and a, a lot of um, counsel that um, they're looking for me to provide. And also, I just want to have those conversations with them as well. So I think that's a big part of it. I do think that, um, to me, it's very important to travel to see my artists perform. Um, I think it's, you know, it's first important just because I, I want to experience firsthand what they're doing and how an audience is reacting um, and, and all of that. And also... Uh, you know, I want to show support to them. So, um, you know, I think one of, one of my big responsibilities is the, the travel. Uh, and I try to go to Europe a couple of times a year. And, um, and definitely, you know, during the fall and spring when most opera companies are performing, um, you know, I'm traveling a couple weekends a month at a minimum uh, to see people perform. So that's a big responsibility, too. So did you take psychology lesson, uh, psychology courses in college? <laughs> no, you, well, because, only the only the uh, you know the one hundred one. Because uh, we talk but, about uh, you know as music faculty, it's it's always the singers that are that are crying in the studio. You know, <laughs> seldom the trombone player comes in and is crying. Uh, and I'm yeah, sure you know, the interesting thing is because it's that's their instrument, right? They're, exactly. They are their instrument. Yeah, and they can't put it down. See, I'm a trumpet player. Right. And we could throw it against the wall, whatever, or put it down for <laughs> for two weeks or whatever, you know. But a singer, that's it. You're living with it, and you can't get rid yeah. of it. But uh, we always hear that, you know, that this... Yeah, I think it's, it's not hard not to take criticism about your singing or your performing as criticism of yourself, because yes. there is no separation. Right. Um, 
that and that's one of the hardest parts of this business. It's also one of the reasons that it's a super rewarding business to be in because, mm-hmm. um, you know, I've uh, when I pick people that I want to work with, I try to pick it um, not only on the talent but on the type of person they are, and I mm-hmm. and I hope to you know for it to be a long a long relationship, um, you know, and that we will build a, a bond. And so um, there is there's a huge personal element. To it, um, and, and you know that can be a pro and a con. Yeah, and I'm sure you have psychologists on call. <laughs> <laughs> Should you need them? Anyway, there's another, another tweet. We have, tweet. We have another tweet. Yes. Um, Marsha Marie has a question. Uh, she says, "How do you get up and coming artists from small churches to Carnegie Hall? What are the steps?" Whether it's a small church or right out of school, what are the things that you're doing to get them to be able to make a living doing this? Yeah. Uh, well, you know, I think I, yeah, it's, it's mostly based on, you know, a network that I've, I've cultivated of, um, presenters and opera companies and symphonies and venues. Um, and you know, I, I've worked to kind of be in a position where I can make recommendations to them or they'll come to me for recommendations. And, and, you know, a lot of it is just building performance opportunities for the artists and building up their their credits and their resume credits and hoping that over time they go from one level to the next level, um, you know, and, and you just go step by step. Uh, now some people it goes faster than others and that, you know, depend, depends on a variety of things because it is a, a market just like any others. And, and sometimes people move more easily within it. Um, but yeah, a lot of it is just trying to build up those credits, trying to build up those opportunities and those chances for artists to perform and to network and everything that comes along with that. What would you say? It's it's interesting because as you're talking, yeah, it sounds like you're. It's a very network, networking heavy job for you. Like yeah. constantly calling, talking to people, shaking hands. What uh, what tips would you give to people listening about how to network properly, how to build that network of people so that you have people to fall back on and you can um, ex- expand opportunities for yourself or for them or for people you're working with. Well, I think part of it is getting to know, um, you know, people that you're trying to add to their network and understanding them as people and then, you know, trying to, to meet them where they are, um, you know, I think is a big part of it. Um, and I think, you know, it's an interesting thing being in the position that I am because I maintain a relationship with the venue, with the presenter. Um, I also need to at times defend my artists. Um, you know, or protect them in certain situations. Um, and so, you know, I'm kind of playing both sides in some in some cases, um, and that's just the nature of it. So I think a lot of it is, um, I think honesty is huge. You know, I'm very straightforward. I'm very honest. Um, I don't um, mislead. I don't uh, complicate. Um, and I think the presenters really um, – have built trust with me because of that and artists have as well. So um, I think getting to know people and, and, you know, approaching them where they are and then building trust with them, those are two really key things. Mm-hmm. Okay. Uh, in reading your website, one thing you mentioned is that you have the blurb, the company prides itself on strategic planning, personal attention and aggressive promotion. But with the 43 clients that you have, how do you keep that all together? I know you have uh, a woman who works with you. I know you have Sarah who works with you. Should we give a shout out to uh, her as well, by the way? Big time shout out to Sarah. Sarah's a huge part of what we do. Is Sarah Frazier, did I say her last That's name right. properly? Okay. Um, got it. What is, how are you delineating the responsibilities? Because it sounds like with 43 people, and you're, you, know, you guys are the mother hens of 43 different people who all want your attention and all want gigs and all want to make more money this year than last year and still get to do what they want to do. How do you divvy sure. it up and, and, and make sure that everything gets done? Well, yeah, I mean, I think that, you know, we have definitely built a, a real team approach. Um, I think, you know, the interesting thing is um, people ask me this question a lot, a lot about, oh, 40, 40 people, and that kind of strikes them as a lot. In my, um, you know, in kind of what I see in the industry, there are a lot of um, rosters that – will carry, uh, you know, triple digits or approaching it of artists. And to me, I'm like, wow, I, that's, that's, uh, that feels like every minute of the day would be really busy. But with 40, 40 artists, 43 artists, 
um, it actually works out pretty nicely where um, every day there's enough space to, to do what we need to do to pick up that extra phone call, to spend a little extra time on something. Um, it's a, you know, it's, it is 43 people, but they all have different um, needs. Some are more communicative, some are less. Um, and I think also a big thing is, you know, um, I think they all really trust us and what we're doing. So, um, they're, you know, most of them are not micromanaging us. They, um, they know that we're out there working for them uh, and they feel confident in that. So it actually works pretty well. Uh, I was just going to say, what is the number one complaint they have of you? Good. Yeah. When they call you and number they're screaming complaint. at you and what is usually, <laughs> what's, what are they screaming about yeah. usually? No, yeah, um, I think the biggest thing is just, you know, they want to make sure that um, all these details are getting taken care of, um, you know, because like you said, there is a, there's a really broad network. Um, you can always be making an extra phone call to someone. You can always know a little more information. You can always be doing that extra step. So um, I think, you know, the biggest thing that I do here is just, Hey, have you checked in with this place? Hey, did you have this piece of information? Um, hey, I would really like to do this thing. Um, but to me, you know, as we talked about at the beginning of the conversation, um, I want to work with artists who are proactive about their own careers. And so, you know, I would much rather have that um, than, than be left to my own devices to um, try to think of every, every avenue that I should be pursuing and every idea. Uh, I, you know, so... Um, that's probably the thing I hear the most, though. Mm-hmm. Interesting. Um, my question, my, my next question was going to be about just the artists themselves, because they're like athletes in that they can't perform every single day. Uh, right. And even especially for opera singers, how often can, and I know it's person to person, but just in generalities, how often can a, an opera singer or your vocalist be out there performing? How many days a year, nights a year can they do it? Yeah, I mean, you know, normally if opera performances are normally spaced apart um, at least by a day. Um, now, symphony, you know, if it's with a symphony, if it's a, a, a Mozart Requiem or another choral piece with vocalists or something, um, you know, that'll be, uh, those will be back-to-back, mm-hmm. you know. Um, there might be two on one day. There might be a late morning and an evening um you know so that that's a little different but in terms of a fully staged opera um costumes uh sets all all of that um those are normally spaced out by at least a night so it would be very typical um if we take a city like dayton or something like that if dayton's going to do an opera there'll be a few weeks of rehearsal and then there's probably going to be two performances and it's probably going to be a friday evening and a Sunday matinee or something mm-hmm. like that. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then if it's a bigger company like the Met or something like the Metropolitan Opera or something like that, and they do more performances, those are normally spread out by at least a couple of days. Because uh, it is, it's a really big, it's a big lift um, to, to sing a full opera like that. Mm-hmm. In general, where is the best revenue for your clients? Is it in the United States or is it internationally? And if internationally, what countries in particular are kindest to the genre and to your artists? Well, Asia is very um, is very kind to opera. Um, you know, there are a lot of venues that are very well funded um, and that are willing to compensate the artists very well, which is a great thing. Uh, I've got a, an artist right now who's overperforming um, with the symphony in Tokyo, uh, and they're actually they're going to do West Side Story um, in mm-hmm. concert. But um, you know, the, Asia definitely is a wonderful uh, market for classical music. Um, the U.S. There, there's a lot of opportunity, and certainly in the big opera houses and the big symphonies. Um, so San Francisco, New York, Chicago, uh, Dallas, Houston, um, etc. You know, those organizations pay very well and um and you know as i said the per performance fees and that sort of thing is really where most of the revenue comes from so it's very correlated that way mm-hmm. but i guess it's it's very competitive to get your artist in to those markets and into you know the for example you mentioned tokyo uh, your one artist is going to do west side story did they call you? Did you call them? How long did you pitch them? How long in advance did you know this production was going to take place so that you could 
get them to know, hey, our my artist is the one who's perfect for this, and you have to hire her instead of somebody else. Well, that one was actually a really a really um, lucky one for me because um, basically the San Francisco Symphony had done West Side Story in concert, and that symphony was um, they and the San Francisco had recorded it, and that symphony was very happy to take a lot of the people who had done it with San Francisco. Mm-hmm. Um, so that one, you know, and that's actually, that leads to an interesting point about what I do, because sometimes it really is just answering that email. It, just, it is saying, oh, yep, they've got that time in the calendar, and that these contractual terms work, and there we go. And sometimes mm-hmm. it is months and months of knowing an opportunity is there, knowing that I've got the right artist for it, and, you know, just... Uh, incrementally trying to nudge the presenter and get them to agree with me that the artist is the right one for it. Um, so, yeah, it's it's fascinating um, the way all of that works because sometimes it's very easy and sometimes it's months and months of legwork. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Now, I, I'm, I assume you work on a, a commission and a percentage. Yep. Is it a percentage of gross or is it gross with some deductions like in the... Rockfield, they usually ma- a good manager will work gross and take off the tour um, expenses, and then right, so you know the tour. The, you, you sometimes they call it gross on net. Uh, you know they use it, these terms that they just throw out. So it's just one. Yeah, so you, I'm not asking you, gotta, you for the percentages, but just normally, how do you work? Yeah, well, there there are standard percentages in classical music um, that are kind of agreed upon in the U.S., which are if it's a concert gig, one of those shorter things we talked about is 20%. If mm-hmm. it's an opera and you're there for, you know, a few weeks and you're doing some performances, it's 10%. Um, you know, we have, um, we have a union, AGMA, but not all of the opera houses are members of right. that union. Um, so... If it is an AGMA contract, then there is stipulated per diem. Mm-hmm. Um, so we negotiate the gross, and then there's always some per diem built out. Uh, and so one thing that we do for our artists is if they're working somewhere like Seattle, where um, we're negotiating a gross a contract amount, but then Seattle is going to take some of that as per diem and give it to the artist because they're not paying for the artist's accommodation mm-hmm. while they're in Seattle, then we'll deduct that before we ah, take our commission. Right. Um but if it's a if it's a city, you know, an opera company where the the accommodations are being provided and all of that, then yeah, it's just a commission of the gross. Right, right. Okay. Uh, we have another tweet. Uh, Gabriel Garcia says, "I recently learned that you received your bachelor's degree in business administration, but you were also studying vocal performance. What was your plan? All was your plan always to manage the artist or to become an opera singer yourself?" Ah. Uh, uh, no, I never. Um, I never wanted to be an opera singer. I uh, I was afraid to some extent of performing that way, and I was very impressed that anybody could do it. Um, I actually didn't in college um, have a plan for that. I was majoring in business because my dad was a business executive, and I thought, okay, I'm going to a small liberal arts school. Um, I'll major in business and then I'll figure out what to do with it. And then while I was there, I was singing in um, choirs and I was taking voice lessons as an elective. And I had a friend who was really into uh, opera specifically. And so he knew that I was undertaking these activities and started passing some opera albums my way. And I found that I really liked it. Uh, and so it just ended up being a good marriage that, um, that I got onto the business side of the classical music world and realized that that kind of married um, this interest that I did have in classical music, this inherent interest. I just loved listening to it from when I first heard it with, um, you know, some other skills I had that worked well for the business part of it. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, we have a, another tweet for you. I'm trying to pick. Yeah, this is, I think, is a good one. In our studio. Here we go. Uh, so, Jade or Onari, <laughs> yeah. what difficult aspects uh, about your job do you face that other managers in more mainstream dramas don't often deal with? How do you successfully push through them and make it work in your best interest? Hmm. Well, I'm, you know, I'm not sure because I haven't ever worked in um, more mainstream settings or had much exposure to that. Um, I mean, I will say that 
the thing about the classical music world is that it is so fragile because it is based on a lot of donations uh, and grants and things like that. And so there is um, an instability to it. Uh, for example, I got into the, uh, the classical music world in 2007, uh, and then I had my first full-time job in the fall of that year. And 2008, there were a couple of companies that went out of business. Um, Baltimore, the opera company in Baltimore went out of business. Um, and that was that was scary, you know. That was like, wow, okay, that's a presenter that we would like to be working with, and all those opportunities are gone. Um, so I don't know if, if people in other fields face that sort of thing or not. But to me, the thing about the classical music world um, that can be a little bit daunting like that is that it is fragile, and, uh, and and you know, it is a little bit of just stacked, and you you you're always hoping that that's all going to stay intact and that those people that are so generous are going to continue to be. Mm -hmm. There's a, uh, there was an article this summer, actually, because a, a symphony in, uh, I can't remember what one it was, in Pennsylvania folded. One of these ones where they just pick up New York, you know, players and put on mm. concerts and so on. And there was an article by, I can't remember who it was, but it was someone who was fairly um, renowned in the classical field in the business and his uh article was saying that there are just too many symphonies and that's mm -hmm. why they're folding there's just not a big enough audience in america for the number of symphonies and then he took it a step further and said that the problem is music schools because they are only producing as we talked about earlier people who can play two cents worth of the every dollar spent on Mm. on music and of course we know that um new york city opera went under um and so it, it no one's immune from it uh you may right. always have santa fe you may always have houston and of course new york and all the big five and so on but um i, I think i just like your opinion i think he makes a good point that the um you know we're the only discipline music is the only discipline that really graduates people that have reproduced something they have played right. mozart they have you know you can't get out of art school by reproducing a mona lisa you get a right. foundation courses and then you have to produce something that is original now we get a little of that of course with composition but it's still not the mainstream of what music schools do and i often try to think of another discipline in a university where you get you get a degree from reproducing and how well yeah. you reproduce historically too so um just like you're you know i i read when i read that article I, it was very i thought it was a very fresh opinion it was daring uh, i can't since i said i can't remember who wrote it but i think that there are some very strong points to that yeah, I think, you know, and I've never heard it phrased the way that you just did, but that totally makes sense. Um, and I think, you know, who our future audiences are is definitely a huge concern, um, you know, especially because we don't see the same level of basic music education in schools that we have historically. Mm -hmm. um, we don't see an enthusiasm um, from younger generations uh, for the for classical music and for the performing arts and and that definitely um, is something that's of concern. I mean, my feeling is that um, that opera and the classical music, um, you know, they they round us out as a society. And uh, and I look at myself as an example of someone who, um, you know, my grandparents were a big opera fans, but I didn't really know about that when I was a kid. Mm. Um, and my parents never really took me to operas. They would take me to concerts and different things, and I'm sure I was, you know, customarily bored and right. all of that. Yeah, sure. uh, and yet I came to love it, and uh, it came to be a central part of my life. And so I feel like, you know, if there are people like me, then there's, then there's a place for this. But I do think that we have some hard questions um, that need to be addressed. And I think that um, some companies are really doing a, a good job of that. Opera Philadelphia um, they did a really big marketing study 
and they use the same folks that come in and do it for Coke and, and these other brands. Mm -hmm. um, and, you know, they tried to figure out, okay, what do people in Philadelphia want out of an opera company? How do they want to consume this product and everything that comes along with that? And then they kind of structured things in a way where they had a festival that was bingeable. Um, they had operas based on modern, more modern themes and topics. Um, mm -hmm. And, you know, they kind of tried to put all this together in a way that then it would be more um, digestible to their audiences. So I am happy to see that people are looking at their communities and saying, OK, how can we make this more interesting mm -hmm. and more accessible and vital? Yeah, I think Peter Gelb did a, a wonderful job, even though the Mets still isn't making money, but to bring it to the jumbo screen in, in um in Times Square, and then also now the number of theaters that have the Saturday yeah. afternoon live performances. I mean, he stuck his neck out, uh, and I think it's, it certainly has paid off in maybe not dollars and cents, but in certainly in the, the getting the word out, you know, in, the, sure. in civil terms. Definitely, and I also love to see when opera companies will, you know, they'll take over the, the baseball stadium or whatever, mm -hmm. the city where they are, and put it on the Jumbotron. San Francisco and Washington do that uh, yeah. very successfully. I love seeing things like that. Yeah. Uh, last question, because we have to wrap up. Uh, in about 60 right. seconds, one thing we haven't talked about is, is recording contracts, necessarily. Do your artists... Are, do they desire to record for Deutsche Grammophon or Sony Classics or DECA or London? Forget um, about it. Or are they hoping that <laughs> somebody will call them up? And Because the, the labels still exist, and even though they're mainly putting out a lot of catalog, um, they're still there and have staffs of, you know, skeleton staffs of people. So is sure. that still something they're trying to do? I think that, um, you know, in terms of those really big labels, I think those are really only accessible to the top year of artists and, and even in my career I've been involved with some of the people who have been offered um, those contracts and especially when you're unproven um, they're very unfavorable to the artist uh, mm -hmm. by nature you know so I think what I'm seeing that there's a lot of success um, with is, is an organization that'll say we want to um, record this piece of music we want these people to be the, the artists and um, either the, it's a straight buyout um, or it's a partial buyout and then, you know, maybe something on the back end. Um, but, you know, I think a lot of people are happy just to do a really quality recording and be paid for it and, and have that as something that's a lasting part of their work. But it's definitely a lot different than it used to be in that area. Mm -hmm. Well, this has been different than it used to be in our area, having you on the air, Alex Fletcher. So we appreciate you being here. Alex Fletcher, everybody. Yes. Everybody, it's been Alex, the Alex Fletcher Show. The Alex Fletcher My Show. Do you pleasure. hear me? If I sing a, a jingle about you, will you sign me and then work me around the world? No. Okay. There, yeah, yeah, he said yes. So that's it. We have a deal. We have a deal. I'll give you 60% of every half dollar. So there we go. <laughs> Wonderful. <laughs> there we go. So, Alex, thank you so much for calling yes, thank in. Thank you. And yes. we, re we really do appreciate you. You said some great stuff tonight. Thank you. It was a pleasure. Thank you. Alex Fletcher, one more time. Yes. Goodbye, Alex Fletcher. <laughs> Goodbye. Thanks, Alex. Bye-bye. And we have people to bye thank. Bye. Yes, we need to uh, give some quick thanks to some people. Um, first of all, we want to remind people, check out our newsletter. Go to musicbiz101wp.com. We have that newsletter. It comes out twice a week, every Sunday night, every Wednesday, which tells you who our next guests are going to be. By the way, our guest next week will be in the studio, Liz Lewis from Warner Brothers Records, the VP of Creative Sync for Advertising and Gaming. Wow. She'll be in on March 7th. Then we're off for a week because there is spring break at William Patterson University. But... We want to give some thanks. First of all, thank you, Ashley. Yes. Engineering this. And thank, thank you for the new headphones. Yes. We, I we, know nobody can see them, but. No, uh, but uh, we sound great to ourselves. Yes. Georgina, thank you for being here tonight yes. and, and reading the tweets Very so well. Very good reader. And by the way, when we sign off, you can sing the national anthem for us. Okay, so <laughs> at night, it's it's only a daytime anthem. We need to give thanks to the folks at Van Dyne Bruno, Inc. and White Hat Management. Yes. With artists like Charlie Puth, Dave Matthews, Kith. There's only one place to go for your band's business management. You know where that is? You go to VB. Hyphen. CPA.com. What is best for you? We thanked Rob Fusari for the song coming in. We want to give our th also thanks to Christine Vey, who's a wealth manager and president of Vey Wealth Management. You see, 
Dr. Esteban, Christine has helped many of our professionals at William Patterson University manage their investments and plan out their retirement. Oy if, vey. Oy vey. If someone like you is looking for guidance on how to plan for your retirement, or if you have questions on anything from investments and portfolio management to insurance and retirement planning, give Christine a call at 732-455-1510. Mm-hmm. You could also email her, Christine with a C-H, at oyveywealth.com for advisement. The oy won't get Take out me. the oy at veywealth.com. She's also a champion uh, fishing person. That's what I'm they're serious. called, champion fishing people. She's a fishing, very big. Fisherman? Fisherwoman? Fisherwoman. She has a big F on her very shirt big. when she goes out there. Tuna, shark. I'm serious. Really? Good to know. I have to watch yeah, it. I guess. I know. Finally, we've been talking it's about... Lent. <laughs> it's Lent, so she's uh, busy. Yeah. This is her busy 40 <laughs> days. Right. Speaking of artist management, what book did you write the sixth edition of Dr. Esteban that came out on 6-6-2017? I can't stand the film. <laughs> <laughs> that is the book. It's a comic book. And no, it, uh, it's called Managing Your Band, <laughs> and it's in the sixth edition, and it's selling very well, we think. Yes. Well, we, we don't we, get as much right. paperwork on it as we should, but um, yes. Yes. And we gave two away because this past week we were where? We were at the Millennium Music Conference in Harrisburger, PA. Yes. And we gave out two copies. And if you sign up with our newsletter or you go to our musicbiz101wp.com, you can see who the winners were. A guy named Jace, J-A-S-E, and a guy named Rav, R-A-V. Mm-hmm. But it was interesting going to the middle of Pennsylvania, talking about the business. And they really, with all due respect to um, the Keystone State, they don't know anything. They have no idea. They really. They had no idea. I told my uh, uh, survey of the music and entertainment industry class today, which is uh, the intro level course that you take at William Patterson University for the music business, I said after five weeks, you already know more than probably 99.9% of the people in the country about the music and entertainment industry. Yes. Even if you didn't come to class. That's right, which happens. (laughs) That's right. So... Uh, until next week when we have Liz Lewis from Warner Brothers Records, VP Creative Sync for Advertising Gaming. I am David Professor Kirk Philp, and then we have a Dr. Esteban. That is I. Marconi. Ashley Weltner is over there, and we have Georgina Reed. We want to thank you all for listening to Music Biz 101 and more on Brave New Radio, Wednesdays at 8 p.m. Eastern Standard Time, Greenwich Time, America, the beautiful. God bless us, everyone. At the end of every show, we do not say hello, do we? Say Kazunheit. We say, oh, <laughs> No, we don't say hello. That's silly. At the end of every show, we say, Adios!